2: Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The U.S. Department of Labor, through its Employment and Training Administration, ETA, administers the Unemployment Insurance Program. This program is a jointly administered federal-state program that provides unemployment benefits to eligible workers who are unemployed through no fault of their own and meet other state eligibility requirements. It is based on federal law, but administered by state government employees under state law. Due to the size and complexity of the IU program and its role in dispersing funds directly to individual claimants, it faces significant challenges in managing risk. What are the strategic priorities for Labor's Office of Unemployment Insurance? How does the IU program work? What are improper payments and how has the IU program sought to reduce them? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Gay Gilbert, Administrator of the Office of Unemployment Insurance at the U.S. Department of Labor. Gay, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. Before we delve into specifics, um, could you give us a brief overview of the history and mission of Labor's Office of Unemployment Insurance? How does it support the overall mission of the department and its employment and training administration?
0: Well, broadly, the Department of Labor overall has a variety of different uh, roles with regard to employers and workers in this country. Um, it helps them have a safe workplace, uh, secure benefits. In the Employment and Training Administration, however, we're f- we're focused mostly on helping workers uh, get good jobs uh, with good wages and have the skills that they need to be in those jobs. And also, with unemployment insurance, one of the roles is when unemployed when workers are unemployed, uh, we want them to be able to have income support while they get to that next better job and to connect to the rest of our workforce system while they do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of how uh, the Employment and Training Administration fits in the overall department's role.
2: So your specific office, the Office mm-hmm. of Unemployment Insurance, how is it organized? What's the size of your budget? How many folks you have working with you?
0: Right. Um, so I my staff uh, is actually relatively small. They're only about 65 people. Um, we also have about 35 additional people in our regional offices across the country that are focused on unemployment insurance uh, that aren't under my purview, but we work quite closely together. Our program, uh, we're uh, we're organized by function, as most offices are. We have uh, units that manage money. We have units that oversee performance. We uh, have people who do the program uh, sort of interpret federal legislation and provide guidance to states um, and the like So.
2: So what about your specific responsibilities and duties as the administrator of the Office of Unemployment Insurance? Could you tell us about those areas under your purview? What, what's your a week in the life of uh, of Gay Gilman? <laughs> uh,
0: it's uh, very varied. Um, well, as I mentioned, there's kind of different buckets of, of work, I think. And and so uh, we're about the over... First of all, the UI program is a federal-state partnership. And I think it's really important to understand that at the front end. It's driven by federal broad federal laws that... Um, states then have great flexibility however in developing their own ui laws and and they administer the program in accordance with those laws we also we provide the money for them to administer the program but they collect the money to pay the benefits so it's a it is a partnership it's not a seamless federal program as some some other programs might be um so a lot of our work is helping states do what they need to do so we have to ensure that their laws conform to federal law We have to be sure that they understand the requirements of federal law. So we issue a lot of guidance and, as I said, interpretation of the federal law. We also provide them a lot of technical assistance and tools to help them do the job. Uh, So a lot of focus on that. And Then we also measure their performance and oversee and monitor uh, their administration of the program. have to be sure that they're doing it in a way that conforms with federal law.
2: So, you know, regarding your duties and responsibilities, what would you say your three significant challenges are and how have you sought to address those challenges?
0: We have lots of challenges in the UI uh, program. Uh, <laughs> um, one of the biggest challenges is this, uh, this, the way the structure of the program as a federal-state partnership. Every state's law is different. Uh, and so there isn't a uniformity of uh, across the country. Uh, that so there's different benefit amounts, different eligibility requirements, uh, different ways, to taxing structures. Um, so there's uh, it's it's very different across states. And so keeping track of all of the differences among the states, and being sure that all of those differences are complying with federal law, uh, is it can be challenging. <laughs> I think we're uh, faced. Um, uh, with some kind of operational challenges in the system, i think uh we our program is over eighty five five years old now eighty seven I think and counting so making sure our program is evolving with the in the economy i think is a is an important issue for us and that it remains viable and and Um, achieves its missions. And it really has two missions, by the way. Um, The first mission is really to be that um, income support and sort of safety net for unemployed workers when they are unemployed through no fault of their own, which is kind of a key premise. And then also being sure when we have an economic downturn or a recession, uh, it acts as an economic stabilizer. Uh, It's intended to quickly get money in the hands of unemployed workers who will spend that money in their local economy so it slows the recession and makes it less deep. Mm -hmm. So two really important missions. So as economies change, being sure that we're being able to do both of those things effectively is a challenge.
2: So what has surprised you most in in your current role?
0: So I started my career uh, at the state level in unemployment insurance. I think I knew at the state level there was a lot of bureaucracy. Um, I thought I knew how to manage that. But I have to say at the federal level, it's (laughs) (laughs) um, it's it's maybe not pale, but it, it does take it to some new levels, I think it's... Uh, and so anybody who works in, in public sector, I think, has to has the challenge of sort of the surrounding bureaucracy, and you can manage it uh, and manage around it and still get things done. Uh, it just takes a little more work at the federal level.
2: <laughs> so we actually just hinted that you have a... You come from a background in the state uh, level as well. But could you tell us a little bit more about your career path? How did you get to where you are today? All right. So
0: I... Um, was not unlike my uh, some of my siblings. I didn't have a driving passion for one thing when I was growing <laughs> up and uh, going through school. So I. Um, I I actually um, credit the Michigan State's volunteer program for starting me down a path toward working with people and in government and uh, started out as a social worker in West Virginia, um, kind of moved up the ladder into management roles, got some more education along the way, both a masters and a law degree. At one point I decided social workers didn't have enough power in the world and maybe the law degree would be useful. And then I, I practiced for a couple of years uh, at law and found that not to be a fit for me and really wanted to go back to government. And I applied for the UI director's position in Ohio. And nobody was more surprised than me when I actually got that job since I had no UI experience, only management experience, which is what they were looking for. But it was an, an enormous opportunity, and I love this program. Uh, it's a, it's a very complex, lots of great policy issues to tackle on any given day, and I've just enjoyed it tremendously. And that well, and then I uh, my Ohio experience led me to workforce programs also. At one point, I we were having a governor change, and I decided it was time to make a move and uh, found my way to the federal government. And again, in workforce programs to begin with, and I did that. oversaw the the um, public workforce system for a while uh, as a senior executive. And then during the recession, uh, at the height of the Great Recession, I moved back into the unemployment insurance world, which was a pretty dynamic time.
2: So you know with that as a backdrop, um and your experience in general, what are the characteristics of an effective leader and who's influenced your leadership and management style?
0: So I, I, um, I've i been asked on a number of occasions to talk to some of our emerging leaders in our, in our uh, organization. And so I have my sort of top 10 hit list. But um, the one thing I usually tell them first is that leadership and management are not the same. Um, you can be a reasonably good manager with good organizational skills and good people skills uh, um, and get jobs done. But to be a leader really requires um, looking ahead, sort of uh, being uh, willing to take risks, being entrepreneurial, being uh, passionate about what you want to do and really wanting to push uh, things. Um, and it also requires building teams and being able to bring the team with you. I think those are
2: some of the key pieces. Has anybody specifically influenced you?
0: You know, I've, I've um, had a lot of good role models yeah. along the way, and and I can't say all of any of them were perfect, probably. But I tried to glean the best of each of them. Uh, uh, but I, I uh, so I, yes. And I, anyway, I think what's really important is any anybody who's in a leadership role is finding a fit for your for your style, for your personality, for the environment that you're in. I think that that, uh, there's no one size fits all in leadership.
2: What are the strategic priorities for Labor's Office of Unemployment Insurance? I will ask its administrator, Gay Gilbert, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Gay Gilbert, administrator of the Office of Unemployment Insurance at the U.S. Department of Labor. So Gay, what are your key strategic priorities for the Office of Unemployment Insurance?
0: Well, I think there are probably three big ones. Um, The first, I would say, is being sure, which I already mentioned, sort of making sure that the program continues to be viable and strong um, uh, from a policy perspective and the way it functions uh, to meet its key missions. Um, Another is to be sure that states are able to implement the program effectively. Mm -hmm. Then I think being sure that the customers of the program get what they need. um, Ultimately, we're about being sure that unemployed workers uh, have access to benefits and that employers in their role in the program are able to navigate that in the best possible way.
2: So, you know, with those those strategic priorities, as a follow-up, what are some of the persistent internal challenges and external pressures um, that have shaped and informed your strategy and vision for the office? You know, one of the Things that's true. I think of any,
0: probably any government program, not just federal. um, We're we're all uh, always challenged with doing more with less and working within constrained uh, budgets, and so. and yet the, the needs of the program continue to roll, and, and there's lots of work to do. Uh, and so the, the trying to maintain um, a clear path and strategically prioritize is almost a daily um, re- requirement. And I think that's a, a pretty huge um, challenge for almost any government program, and it's certainly true in the UI space.
2: You know, you alluded to it earlier in our previous segment, but I'd like to get dig a little deeper. Um, would you outline the core principles establishing uh, the unemployment insurance program? And, you know, how does it operate? What are the roles and responsibilities of the federal government versus the state governments mm-hmm. in administering the pr- uh, program?
0: So it does have some interesting foundational uh, principles. Uh, again, I mentioned that it kind of, it's a 87 or so year old program. It came up with a new deal uh, along with the social security uh, world. Um, again, it was intended as a social insurance program mm-hmm. and not a means tester program like other federal programs or state programs may be. Uh, it's really intended for those workers who have attachment to the labor force, who are unemployed through no fault of their own, that they have this safety net that gets them to the next job. Um, and... That's important to employers in many cases, because and particularly as we were growing up through the industrial age and a lot of manufacturing, there was a need to retain that skilled talent on the employer's part. So that was their investment to make sure they would have that access. So it is kind of this pact between employers and the workers in the workplace. There are some important kind of principles under UI. One is that, and this gets to being sure you're moving money quickly, both as a safety net and as as an economic stabilizer, that you pay when due. So you have to, we're in a hurry to get the benefits in the hands of the worker for for both of those reasons. And there's also uh, some requirements that um, there's an exchange. The worker has to be sure that they're able for work, available for work, actively seeking work. That's to ensure that they get back to work as quickly as possible and their duration of benefits is as short as possible. So that keeps the cost for the employer down. There's also uh, the funding of the program. There's a notion that um, employers who have more experience with unemployment are the ones that should pay more taxes. We call that experience rating. Uh, And so states uh, are required to have structures that that do
2: that. What exactly, if you could just kind of... If you were to do it in a a, a, a bulleted way, if you will, um, like what is the federal government's role and responsibilities, and what does the state have to do in order to make this program operate? Right. So the
0: federal role uh, is one primarily of oversight, um, and it is to be, again, to be sure that state laws conform to the federal law, that they're actually administering the, the program in a way that complies with federal law. So that means that their day-to-day operations actually produce a result that meets our requirements. So they meet our performance standards. They pay when due, which is our term of art for uh, being sure they're paying quickly. They do it accurately and without improper payments. uh, uh, And we monitor states in in that response in, in their administration of the program on all of those fronts. Also that they're stewards of the money and managing their money accurately as part of our federal role. The state role is truly one of operating the program. Okay. So they're the ones who see the customers face-to-face and or not, or virtually in, in our case most of the time. Uh, they actually pay the benefits. They determine eligibility. They collect the taxes and the like. So uh, it's a major sort of process operation, if you will, for, for states to actually operate this program.
2: So, Gay, how is the program financed? And would you explain why the program operates counter-cyclically and what are the implications
0: Sure. So financing, um, the federal government um, collects uh, under the Federal Unemployment Tax Act, uh, FUDA, as we call it, um, collects FUTA taxes from employers. So it's a payroll tax uh, through the IRS. And that money goes to actually pay for administration of the program. And that's funded through our federal budget process uh, to states. And we help manage that through our office. Um, states actually collect the funding for the benefits, also a payroll tax, generally tied in part to the formulas at the federal level. Um, So they collect that money and and, uh, that money goes for benefits. It goes into a trust fund that we help them manage in partnership with Treasury. Obviously, the unemployment insurance program um, has. There's more demand for it when there is mm-hmm. uh, a, a, an economic downturn or a recession. Um, so, one of the things that's important in the UI program is to be sure there are adequate reserves in state trust funds and federal trust funds. Actually, at the time that you you move into a recession, and so. Uh, basically, the goal is during good times in a good economy like we are now, you want states to be building up their trust fund reserves and their benefit reserves so that they're ready uh, at the time a recession hits. And we generally want them to have at least as much as much money in their trust fund that would pay for an average recession for at least a year. That's sort of what we consider solvency is our term for that.
2: So, you know, you gave us a good overview of your priorities uh, of how the program actually operates, how it's financed, and your relationship, your oversight relationship with states uh, who operate the program, but who are receiving? Who are the individuals? How many people are receiving uh, unemployment insurance? And could you give us a, a sense of the characteristics of those folks? Right. So back to the countercyclical nature of of. of uh, um
0: Unemployment insurance, the, the number of people receiving benefits at a given time definitely depends on the economy. So we're in a really good stretch right now, of a really good economy. In fact, our claims load is at an all-time low. In 2016, we had about um, uh, 6.3 million unemployed workers uh, who received about 30. 31.5 billion dollars in benefits. but if you contrast that to the Great Recession at the height of the Great Recession in 2010, we actually had were paying out 156 billion dollars to 11.3 million workers. So that was quite the contrast. From a sort of demographic point of view, slightly over half are white, maybe about 17 or 18 percent are African American, 17 or 18 percent are Hispanic or Latino. There's slightly more men than women, kind of a 60 40 split roughly. What's really different, what varies in terms of who's receiving is in the workers in which occupations and it's industries, that, yeah. and that really varies in geographically and also depending on where we are in the economy. So in the Great Recession, obviously we had two big things that happened. We had the financial collapse, and we had construction and house the housing bubble burst. And so we had uh, hu- huge numbers of of financial uh, workers who wouldn't normally probably have been in the unemployment insurance world. Generally, uh, all of a sudden there was a huge influx. The construction workers. We see them more more on a seasonal basis generally, but this was a more protracted thing during the Great Recession for those in construction. Today, we have uh, some of the states who are built around energy we've seen some kind of boom and bust with uh, with some of the energy companies, oil, gas, coal. and so we, you may be seeing more unemployment in those. so it's really kind of a geographic and industry associated thing that de- determines sort of who's in that
2: mix at any That's given time. you know you mentioned uh, in your description of the program that you know due to the size and complexity uh, of the unemployment insurance program and its role of, of directly dispersing funds, to the individual claimants, um, it faces some significant challenges in managing risks. Um, you know, besides payment errors, which we'll talk about later, what are some of the other key program challenges in this area, and how have you sought to address some of these risks?
0: Well, um, one of the risks is just being able to, for states to be able to administer the program with the tools that they have. And one of their biggest Challenges over in recent years have been um, really old and antiquated information technology systems. They're operating on over 40-year-old or more mainframes that were programmed with COBOL that are inflexible. They they are not um, as new technologies start to to become available. They don't merge with those well, <laughs> um, and so that's been a huge issue. That was particularly challenging during the Great right Recession when we had. New federal programs, uh, extra federal programs that were changing frequently, and they were having a lot of trouble managing that. So that's then that's a risk. So you, if they can't scale up quickly and do their information technology stuff, the, our, the entire system is kind of built around that in many ways. Uh, so that's that's one huge risk. Um, I think also, I think state capacity and in, in the system, um, while while technology has taken on a bigger role in the program, uh, there's still a lot of stuff that has to be done by staff and balance. The states have, I think, issues, challenge, and challenges balancing how much money they point toward technology and how much money they point toward staff, and being able to kind of maintain a successful balance there. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's a challenge. in actually, the delivery uh, of the program.
2: You know, would you tell us? Uh, you mentioned that you provide technical assistance, and I believe there was a recent unemployment insurance call center report that came out—a study. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you can give us an overview of the current state of the uh, unemployment insurance call center operations, and what are some of the core management challenges? Uh, and what does the future state look like?
0: So call centers actually um, actually moving to virtual ability to take claims virtually. It started with call centers uh, back in the 90s and uh, ended up with almost all states. Um, we have maybe a couple territories that don't have call centers, but um, all states having call centers as part of their claims taking operation. That was before the Internet uh, came to us, and now uh, the vast majority of claims are now taking, taken online. However, call centers st- still remain important to states because they're a, a customer-facing uh, way to access somebody and, and hopefully even talk to somebody occasionally. And it's also for people who have access issues with the program there's a need to deal with people who have uh, challenges with computers. People who have limited English proficiency. We need to have alternative access points. So, so call centers still fulfill that role. Um, one of the reasons we did that study is we didn't. We just honestly didn't. N- we knew that the landscape was shifting because of the move to internet-based claims, um, and we wanted to understand how states were going to be using call centers now and how they envisioned looking at them in the future. And I think most all of them do see themselves continuing to have a call center presence. It may not be as great because claims taking is happening more online, but uh, I think the customer service piece is important. Uh Again, this is uh, states having to balance funding, though. There's funding for call centers, funding for IT systems, and funding for staff. Um, and, and sort of balancing all of those costs in the administration of the program is, is probably challenging for states. But I do envision that th- it, they will still have a huge role. One of the nice things of this study is we were able to capture good practices from the states. We also did some research into the private sector and tried to bring some of those uh, things into the mix uh, to make available to states as they think about how to manage their call
2: centers how better. You share? That with them. How do you get these practices, best practices, and lessons learned to the state agencies?
0: Well, you know that's a that's an interesting question. We we uh, it's sort of along the lines of the when you're trying to communicate with somebody, you do it in many ways, that right? Well, you do it in writing, you do it in a webinar, you do it uh, uh, you you go to their conference, or you uh, yes. So um, we. We actually do our technical assistance on all, all those levels. We do have a UI community of practice, uh, an online community of practice. Um, it's a closed community because we don't necessarily like our um, fraudsters out there knowing how we oh, do business. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's intended. Well. <laughs> but it's intended to to sort of help the UI community uh, learn from each other and to sort of feature those best practices. And and we also do uh, do a lot a lot in, with webinars, a lot with convenings. We our regional offices convene their regions on a periodic basis. We go to conferences. There's a national association of state workforce agencies that have both workforce and UI agencies as part of their membership, and they they hold special meetings for UI-specific people and conferences. So we use all of those uh, um, media to do that. What are
2: improper payments? I will ask A. Gilbert, administrator of the Office of Unemployment Insurance at the U.S. Department of Labor, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
1: Who is Dr. David Shulkin? What is his leadership philosophy? What can we learn about him from his time leading the Veterans Health Administration? Join host Michael Keegan next week for a special edition of The Business of Government Hour, a profile in leadership, as he explores these questions and more. That's next week on The Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for The Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.
2: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Gay Gilbert, Administrator of the Office of Unemployment Insurance at the U.S. Department of Labor. So, Gay, an operational risk associated with the unemployment insurance program involves what is called improper payments. Could you explain to us what exactly improper payments are and what kinds of improper payments affect your program? Sure. Well,
0: um, in recent years, um, the federal government, the Congress, has... Uh, passed uh, uh, several pieces of legislation that uh, define improper payments and put responsibilities on federal programs uh, with regard to managing them and assessing risk and the like. And their definition of improper payment is quite broad. Okay. So it's, at any time if you find with new information, old information, um, that the the payment should not have been made, then that's an improper payment. Uh, it is, uh, includes fraud, and um, But it isn't – all improper payments are not fraud. And it also includes uh, overpayments as well as people who uh, were underpaid because they were eligible – but we're determined ineligible. So it's kind of a combination of things. Improper payments is a big deal in the unemployment insurance world in large measure because we have been out of compliance, actually, with regard to the federal government for about for over five years now. Uh, it started during the recession. We peaked up pretty heavily during that period. I will say that uh, there are some... Challenges with the way with the way the federal government defines improper payments relative to UI. I mentioned earlier we have this requirement that states pay when due uh, and pay timely, and, and that we have to have due process also. When when claimants, uh, you can't just stop somebody's payments without the proper due process and an opportunity for that claimant to be heard and provide information, which takes time, uh, and that and those two things kind of clash. Those are two really good policy. Components of the UI program, but mm-hmm. they actually create improper payments uh, under like the federal I mean, under the federal definition, and so um, we have several root causes for improper um, payments that are our biggest ones nationally uh, in UI. One is when claimants uh, continue to claim after they've gone to work. You can imagine somebody might be confused that they could still claim until they get their first paycheck. It's actually when they go to work, but so that's a big that's a big one. Roughly about a third. Um, We also have an issue where employers at the front end, when eligibility is being determined, you have to determine that the person has been unemployed through no fault of their own. And so the reason for separation becomes important, and employers have to give us that information. So getting that timely and accurately is a challenge. Uh, And sometimes states have to go ahead and make that decision in order to meet our payment timeliness standards. And again, that sort of creates, that potentially creates an improper payment. And then the third category is work search. So I mentioned that claimants have to be able to, be able and available for work and actively seeking work. And so each state's law has a set of requirements about what that work search looks like each week. So it may be three contacts with an employer. It may be uh, five. It may be something else. But they vary across states. Um, And unemployment insurance is claimed every week or or on a biweekly basis, so every week you're redetermining your eligibility. So if an issue arises on work search, it may take us, because of the due process stuff, a couple weeks to resolve that, and so that means, and the state is still required to pay. So again, it creates an improper payment, and that's 37% of our improper payment rate today, and so you only get the rate down if you prevent the improper payment, and in all of those Work search errors, we, we aren't able to prevent them. So we, we, we have an uphill battle here to get at this. Having said that, where we think states have control and can impact improper payments, we are working diligently with them on a lot of different strategies right now.
2: What are some of those strategies to reduce, mitigate, and improper and, and payments? And, and how does the um, IU Integrity Center of Excellence factor into your efforts?
0: Right. So we have tried to use almost every lever we could possibly have to work to get states' attention on this issue. Um, we began with uh, sort of rallying some of the big states because we thought we could probably impact the rate uh, faster through uh, focusing on big states. And so we used them as kind of guinea pigs. We we asked them to convene cross. Program task forces in their in their agencies to sort of identify all the points of where where their their states improper payments were being Im- impacted and to to really do some business process analysis and figure out some new strategies to address their root causes. So we we coined the phrase everyone owns integrity and that's been sort of the big push uh, even nationally uh, for us. We held um, sort of institute virtual institutes with these with the teams from the states to. Help them sort of get their arms around the plans to do this, and then we eventually did that with all states. Um, we have used so pride of program is clearly one of the one of the levers. Uh, we've also used shaming. Um, Probably back in 2011 or so, we actually put up a public-facing work, uh, website, which we had never done before. That really published very clearly um, states improper payment rates and also our national strategies that we were pushing states to focus on and their progress in achieving those. So we had kind of a dashboard where where and states absolutely hated that, but it did get their attention. <laughs> We've also used money. Um, we we're fortunate coming off of the recession and the way we're financed, uh, UI is workload-based. And, and if if not all of the workload that's projected materializes, sometimes we have money at the end of the year. And we had some significant money uh, during uh, as we were coming off the recession. And so a lot of that money, in fact... The, there were two reason, ways we used that money. One was for all things integrity, and one was for uh, modernization of IT systems But um, for states. And so we started twisting their arm. They, we said, if you'll do our, our national strategies, we'll give you money to do that. But you can't have any money unless you do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can do some other things you want to do. Uh, so we twisted arms using our money. And then, you know, obviously, most states actually want to have low and proper payment rates also. So, obviously, we're, our partnership is part of this as well. The Center of Excellence is a rel- relatively new. It's about three or four years old now. We uh, decided we need, would like to bring up a, a sort of a state-driven peer-to-peer Entity that would be sort of the go-to place for getting all things best practices around how states would, because our limited capacity to do that in the in, in the federal and our with the limited staff we had was uh, was challenging, so we did fund uh, the Integrity Center and we've been fortunate enough to get um, actual line-item funding for it uh, mm-hmm. from the Congress, so that's been nice, and they've focused on several kind of key areas. First of all, they've developed a really robust training academy for all things t- related to improper payments for state staff uh, with credentials and everything and so we're excited about that. They've uh, spent an enormous amount of time with really skilled people from the UI world. A lot of uh, retired UI directors uh, came to be part of the center, and they actually spent time on the ground with states really understanding the state of play of how they did their integrity operations and capturing best practices, sort of seeing where there were gaps and what states needed to uh, do the operations. And so they've been compiling this huge database that will now help us actually create sort of the best of the best of each integrity function uh, and sort of be a blueprint for states who are want, who want to model themselves after that. We've also been focusing a lot on data analytics for a couple reasons. One is it's really helpful in fraud detection um, and also because we have a lot of cross-matching. States do a lot of cross-matching with various databases, so prisoner databases, death master files, their own uh, motor vehicle files uh, to sort of identify where there might be a, either a fraud or, or an improper payment. And they have more hits on those on those cross matches, than they have people to work them. Wow. So prioritizing them and making sure that that's a valuable hit becomes uh, important to a state. So the, using uh, data analytics, where you can assign sort of a value to a risk score for a particular hit, is something we want states to get better at, uh, so they can they're using their staff most effectively and also detecting fraud in the most effective way. So they've been focused on a lot of. Um, Sharing of information and actually tool development and understanding what the private sector has to offer, et cetera, around data analytics. Uh, We're also um, in in support of fraud detection and uh, prevention. We also, uh, they're bringing up something called a Suspicious Actor Repository. Um, They're piloting it now with several, about nine states, where the state actually sends to the center uh, any address, phone number, social security number, name that's been associated with fraud in that state. Uh, we are finding that there are a lot of multi-state fraud schemes. Uh, so that will then allow states to cross-match against those and determine if, if they they have a potential challenge for that particular claimant. And so we think that's going to be a really valuable tool. And eventually, we would like to get to an integrated data hub generally for all of the cross-matching um, uh, and maybe support that with more data analytics. Uh, that's a big lift, and so we're we're still scoping that. But the suspicious actor repository gives us a lift to do that. And they also do individual counseling for states. So one of the things we do at the department is identify states who are most challenged, and uh, on all of their performance, but integrity also, uh, and being sure that and their improper payment uh, rate. So those states, we usually send people, a team of people uh, on the ground to sort of help assess the problem, get to where there is, a, identify where there are needs for technical assistance. But then we can point them to the Integrity Center for that technical assistance. Uh, and, and where are those best practices? And can they also go on the ground and help help states uh, get better?
2: See, as a follow-up, um, to what extent are you using cost-benefit and re- Uh, return on investment analysis to evaluate the impact of strategies for um, lessening improper payments. So our um, Office of the Inspector General, who, um, by, because we are out of
0: compliance, spends a lot of time with us on the issue of improper payments, <laughs> uh, also asks us that question. And it's a really hard one. Um, the, As I mentioned, there's a lot of variables that impact whether a, a payment is potentially improper, including things that are structural to the program. Uh, but also the, the economy, uh, if, if all of a sudden you've... Um, uh, for example, in the Great Recession, states uh, tended to bring off the folks who were uh, doing all that cross-matching and working of hits. They ha- they stopped and took claims because the workload was so high. Um, so there are things – and that uh, obviously has an impact on, on the improper payment rate. So there's a, there's a lot of variables uh, that impact um, – and are, make it challenging to isolate one strategy and how well that worked to bring down the rate. And we think it would cost a lot of money and a lot of time that honestly could be better spent actually working on improper payments. So, so we do, however, a lot of monitoring uh, of, of state rates. I mean, we're, we're looking at them quarterly uh, to see where they're headed, um, looking at trend lines. Our estimation of the improper payment rate is a national sample, so we have to sort of be careful with state mm-hmm. data because of, of sample size. But we're, we're monitoring that routinely. We, we're looking at what st- strategies they're implementing. Where, are they achieving their milestones? Is the rate is it is it impacting the rate? Um, is there something else they can do? So we're we're spending a lot of time focusing on this with and looking at data, but not necessarily in a true cost benefit analysis.
2: So you know, could you give us an overview? Of the um, unemployment insurance performs management system, your system. What is the goals, and perhaps you could describe some of the process.
0: And one of my legacies in the UI system is always the one that named UI performs. So UI performs is actually a suite of uh, performance management, uh, performance measures and standards. Um, they go to kind of three big areas: timeliness. Um, accuracy uh, and also integrity so those are kind of the big big buckets um, and these are standards that we we identify actual targets that states are should be meeting uh, and we collect reporting data from states uh, to uh, determine if they're meeting those standards we uh, Actually, there are different ways we get to the actual measurement. We also have some processes on, around quality where we actually bring states together with federal staff to review state cases to determine if they got the right answer and to review quality. Mm-hmm. of, um, and, and there are scores that emerge from that. So, again, we're, we're focused with states on measuring these um, these sort of key aspects of the program to make sure it's healthy and that they're administering the program properly.
2: So, w- performance deficiencies are addressed through the state uh, quality service plans, Um, and that process itself. Could you tell us more about it, the process, how it works, and what are some of the benefits of it? Right, so it's a key monitoring tool
0: for us, and we hope it's important to the states also. On a biannual basis now, the states actually do several things. We give them a suite of sort of national direction priorities, which we want them to address in their plan. We also are now require them, as a result of the improper payment issue, a, very, a separate integrity plan. Um, uh, and then, if a state is not meeting any of the standards in our performance in the UI performance measures, uh, they're required to do a corrective action plan with milestones and timelines about when they expect to uh, get to achievement of the standard, and that's then monitored by our regional offices on a quarterly basis. Um, and again, if there's states that are really poor performers, we target them them a little uh, with a little more intensity with uh, more monitoring, more technical assistance to help them sort
2: of come up from the bottom. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the um, technology, information technology uh, infrastructure. Um, You've kind of alluded a little bit to the carrot and stick Process, but what else is going on at the state level that you're helping out with in terms of IT modernization? Are there any you know points of pride you'd like to talk about?
0: Is it, well, because it's been such a huge challenge, it's been a huge area of focus for us. Also, that that states get to modernization of their IT systems, and there are some challenges because there is no dedicated funding source for this work and it's very expensive uh, just to do a benefit system in a state may cost 30 to 50 million dollars and same for a tax system so it's not a cheap investment and generally states are challenged I think to get that kind of money out of their basic administrative grant so we uh, recognizing that this was a whole country problem we've worked with states on some creative strategies when we had money to invest uh, and i mentioned we had that coming off the recession especially we started incenting states to come together in consortia, so to work together, actually, to, to not do a one, every state on its own. So these uh, consortia came together two or three states at a time, and we know that there's about 70 or 80 percent of what goes on in UI that's common. So that allows them to develop sort of a core system that they can share and then just customize around the edges based on their state law. And that allows them to have better leverage and and. Cost benefit when they when they have a vendor across three states instead of three different states doing it, as well as how they maintain and, and a future development for those systems. So that we, so that's been a huge issue. Um, we also have something we fund called the Information Technology Support Center, uh, which is intended to help states, and counsel with them as they're tackling their IT infrastructure issues, uh, and they could actually go on the ground with states to and with our consortia to help them in developing their RFPs, being sure they understand all the key elements of a modernization process. They have developed a wonderful modernization guide that has every aspect from procurement all the way through to implementation that sort of hits on the risk areas for the project at any given time and what what states can do to mitigate those risks um, because they are hugely complicated and they're so expensive and when they fail, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to help as much as we can to get states across the finish line. So this is still still an uphill battle for us. One of the The goals for the consortia, however, is that once the consortia get their system stabilized, we want to leverage, either allow that consortia to onboard more states to their consortium or to transfer their code to a new consortium who would like to adopt it. So we're trying to leverage every investment we possibly made in IT to help as many states as possible since we still have this
2: uh, larger problem nationally. Would you tell us more about the state information data exchange system sides? What are the benefits of, of this this pl- platform.
0: So, sides is actually one of our um, solutions to one of our improper payment issues. I, oh, mentioned, really I, mean, I mentioned that we one of the issues is getting um, employer information on the reason for separation uh, timely and accurately, so we can determine that the person really is eligible for benefits. So that was that's. Been a perennial problem getting information out of employers uh, uh, for, for a long time, decades. So, uh, the life of the program probably. Um, but SIDES is a, actually an electronic communication tool between the UI agent, state UI agency, and employers and/or their third-party administrators. There are a lot of employers who have a, an agent on, that does their UI work or tax work for them. And so that it was intended to take out the snail mail piece. So that compresses time, obviously. But it also, uh, the, the applications have a lot of edit checks to help with quality. It also standardizes um, sort of what the data elements are that employers have to provide uh, across uh, states, which is huge since um, before that, uh, every state had its own set of data elements, and, and that was really hard for multi-state uh, employers so, so the standardization, the more, better quality, better timeliness is is kind of good for everybody. Um, we also. Um have other modules uh, that we're bringing on in addition to the separation one that will be good for employers. Also uh, show them they're charging, for example the charges to their accounts and um, also some of the other reasons they have to give us information like on wages or uh, something like that. So we have other modules that are creating efficiencies for both the employers and, and for the state UI agencies through SIDES. It's still, um, while we've been at it for a few years, we do have 48 states and, um, already using it and several more in development And um, the big issue now is getting the employers on board. Um, And that's a huge kind of area of focus for us right now with the states.
2: So uh, could you tell us more about the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act? And and where I'm going with this is how do the requirements of that act impact uh, the unemployment insurance program? And are there any any other related federal uh, laws or initiatives that directly impact what your program does?
0: So the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, which um, we call WIOA or W-I-O-A or <laughs> um, Ackermans, <laughs> yes, indeed, um, actually uh, replaced the Workforce uh, Investment Act, which was sort of the... Sure. And both of these uh, pieces of legislation broadly um, form the governance of the public workforce system, uh, and they also um, authorize specific programs within the system. Uh, and. The vision for the public workforce system really is a, a more integrated service delivery system where you bring together multiple federal, state, and local partners and programs and you have a seamless uh, one-stop delivery system. We call them American Job Centers on the ground um, where customers can go and, and have access to any and all of those services. And unemployment insurance is one of the programs that's required to be a one-stop partner in, under the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act Um And that's important for us because since most of our claims are taken remotely. We need things that will drive people to the, the workforce center to be sure that they are getting reemployment services to help become reemployed. And one of the things we didn't talk about earlier is we also have, in addition, a new addition to the UI program uh, in recent years has been something called Reemployment Service and Eligibility Assessment Program. Um, Congress has actually given us um, money for states to bring claimants to the American Job Centers to both make sure they're still eligible for UI, but more importantly, to do a re. Employment plan to give them career guidance to connect them to the one-stop um, services um, in the American Jobs uh, Center. So um, that's been a really important uh, program, and so both the income support as well as that reemployment program become an important piece of the of uh, our overall public workforce system. The UI, the unemployment insurance claimants, are a key customer uh, to the to our system uh, and dislocated workers. Um, so a really important connection for the UI program. Other um, legislation, um, recent legislation um, during the uh, Great Recession, there was a piece of legislation called the Middle Class Tax Relief and Job Creation Act, um, and what I, I will just, there was quite a lot of UI stuff in it, which would probably make your eyes glaze over. But um, there was one particular um, program that I thought was important, and that, uh, that particularly important, uh, and that's something called short time compensation. Uh, and it's also known as shared work um, and I'm not sure either term is quite right but um, th- those that's those are the names um, but the idea is that um, uh, rather than an employer actually lay a worker off um, totally uh, they're allowed to enter into an agreement with the UI agency that, that they'll reduce uh, some segment of their Workforce, they re- reduce their hours rather than lay them off, and then those f- folks are then eligible for a proportional amount of their unemployment benefits. Uh, so they, uh, this is a g- really uh, good thing for uh, for employers, for the workers, and for the economy because it um, it allows the workers to stay in their jobs and still have a. a, a uh, be connected to the workplace. It allows the employer to keep their skilled talent. Um, and that it also saves jobs. And this is particularly important in a recession. Um, I, unfortunately, this happened late in the recession, and we now have about 28 states that have these programs, and we are really promoting it. It's, it's, it's uh, it, As I said, it's a win-win for all concerned.
2: What are improper payments? I will ask A. Gilbert, administrator of the Office of Unemployment Insurance at the U.S. Department of Labor, when our conversation continues. On the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Gay Gilbert, Administrator of the Office of Unemployment Insurance at the U.S. Department of Labor. So, uh, Gay, um, I talk to many of my guests about the use of collaboration partnerships uh, among agencies with the private sector um, to achieve mission results. How are you leveraging partnerships to improve the management and operation of your overall program?
0: Well, I think there are probably two really golden examples of that. Um, we just talked about the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, uh, which is a, a bringing together of programs in a single-service delivery system. So from the unemployment insurance uh, program's aspect um, perspective, I think that's it's critical for us to be partnering with our workforce programs to be sure that uh, and with our reemployment service and eligibility assessment program that we are fully connected um, through those one-stop delivery systems. So that requires us collaborating across our programs at the federal level to make sure we're sending right messages to states and locals as they they make that happen. So that's a uh, a really important um, collaboration point. Um, We also, we've talked about improper payments, and that's a huge area. Um, We actually, a lot of our learning around data analytics, for example, came from the folks who were doing work in the Medicare uh, medicaid space um uh at at um the department of health and human services uh they they were some groundbreakers they actually got some money to do some of what they did <laughs> <laughs> um, which was nice a lot more um but but we do we we get we collaborate with social security with um snap with uh, TANF. Uh, uh, and many of the other uh, federal program benefit programs to sort of share, and in fact, we have some working groups where we're trying to figure out how we might manage cross-program data sharing uh, mm-hmm. to see if that would be valuable at the at, and probably at the state level, um, but um, to, to, and also in the fraud scheme arena because we think probably. Uh, fraud sometimes we, may be happening simultaneously in some of our programs. Uh, I think between the unemployment insurance and the SNAP program, for example, there's probably a good nexus of
2: where that might
0: be occur- occurring.
2: So, you know, what emerging technologies uh, hold the most promise for improving the work that your folks do?
0: So, I think this um, gets back to our our challenge around getting all states modernized and okay. um, uh, their IT systems modernized. And there are kind of two areas I would might point to, and this is. Uh, Again, where we do a lot of work with our um, Information Technology Support Center to help inform uh, our thinking, uh, one is around cloud solution, cloud solutions, and I know a lot of people have different thoughts about what that means what the cloud <laughs> means, and it, and it means th- there are different kinds of cloud solutions. There are some that is, are just about infrastructure, some are about actually um, the the actual. Uh, application and delivery of the application, and then there's kind of the whole ownership of the hosting, the the solution, and the and the data, etc. So, um, but but one of the things that the cloud can do for us, I think, is it, it can be a place where we house the various solutions that states are developing, um, so that we can continue to migrate them out to other states uh, um, as as they're available, either in whole or in part. Uh, I think is one of the areas, and then. Another new area that's kind of caught our attention, uh, and I think it's probably not new in – totally, but it's new in the unemployment insurance space, is something called microservices. Um, We have a couple of our states that are actually – and the way I define microservices is it – sort of does things in really finite components, and it, um, and then it maps them all together uh, with an underlying uh, architecture. Uh, and what that does is, in with new technology now, it allows a lot more agility when you need to change that one thing, um, as opposed to trying to uh, change the whole thing. Right. And... Um, and it also can – you can take that one thing and give it to a state if that's the one thing they need, uh, potentially. Um, so uh, some really good work, I think, in a couple of our states in, in taking that approach to the modernization of their system. It's more incremental it's, and it's a little it's, – it's, it doesn't make you swallow the whole thing all at once, which is really hard and, and challenging. expensive. Yeah. And time And it's, and it's time much consuming. more <laughs> agile to do that. Yeah, right.
2: No. So, you know, turning to the future. Um, Can you give us a sense of some of the key issues that will affect your program over the next couple of years? And what are some of the major opportunities there?
0: So um, let me start with the opportunities, I think. Um, I think right now we have really strong support, um, uh, bipartisan support even in Congress, and and, um, looking forward to this administration learning more about this, but uh, uh, with our work around reemployment, uh, of UI claimants and those strategies, as well as our integrity efforts. So I think I think that's that's a huge opportunity we want to continue to maximize. And um, uh, I think the challenge will continue to be the UI modernization thing will continue to be an issue. And I think we'll want to educate folks around um, uh, how that's impacting the delivery of the program at the state level. Um, and I and then I think. One one other kind of big area is whether or not our states are recession ready, um, uh, and that and that's on a couple fronts. One is we talked earlier about solvency of trust funds. Over half of the states are not positioned today. If we were had a, had a recession today, uh, they do not have enough money in their trust funds to to uh, deal with an average recession for a year. Um, And that's troublesome. Um, And a lot of that was because we had a really deep recession with the Great Recession. It took states a really long time to recover. Many had to borrow significantly as part of to get through the recession. Um, So that's one one issue. Um, I think another is state readiness. We, because the... um, UI claims load has been quite low for a, sus- a sustained period of time and because funding is based on workload, states are kind of at their leanest right now mm-hmm. in terms of how they're operating the program and so if we had the recession tomorrow this issue of how to, how to quickly ramp up and um, uh, when a recession hits, to be able to manage the workload is another kind of a challenge for the UI program generally. It always has been a challenge, actually. But I think particularly now that we have had this really, really low workload, if we were to hit have something in the magnitude of the Great Recession, um, states would truly stumble, I think. Mm-hmm. So those are things that I we want to we want to work with our uh, obviously with um the administration with with um with our funders with uh, with uh, to to educate around what those issues are and to sort of work for looking for solutions to to get to those issues
2: that's great so you know what advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service
0: you know um public service has been absolutely wonderful to me uh, i have found it uh, to be Usually challenging. and It provided great opportunity. Uh, it's uh, been exciting. Uh, it's, uh, and it's just uh, been terrific. So I'd say go for it. Uh, you probably won't get rich, but I, I, if, you, uh, if you have a passion for uh, solving complex problems, to working with people and impacting people's lives, um, public service is a great place to do it.
2: Well, Gay, I want to thank you for joining me today. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country.
0: Well, thank you very much.
2: This has been the Business of Government Hour. A Conversation with Gay Gilbert, Administrator of the Office of Unemployment Insurance at the U.S. Department of Labor. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
1: Who is Dr. David Shulkin? What is his leadership philosophy? What can we learn about him from his time leading the Veterans Health Administration? Join host Michael Keegan next week for a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a profile in leadership, as he explores these questions and more. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.